Hey, I, I have to, um, I just want to begin this morning by acknowledging what a strange, difficult week this was. Um, I mean, on the one hand, we've been dealing with sickness in our own house. Kathy's actually still at home trying to recover uh, from the second round of the flu, and she's, the coughing has finally, thankfully, subsided. It's now her head just feels like it's stuffed full of cotton, and every time she stands up, she feels lightheaded. And she's just tired of of being tired and sick and all that fun stuff. So that's one thing. And then you start hearing in the news about the coronavirus that is beginning to spread and and, and the ways that's even causing people to kind of be afraid to be around one another Um, and and the lives that are being taken from that. Um, You couple that with just everything that was going on in politics and the way that it feels right now, like we can't even as a... We are not the United States of America. We are absolutely being divided. And it feels like there are two completely polar opposite lists of, uh, of realities. And it's, it's difficult to even have a conversation with people. And then, is if that wasn't enough, we leave church last week and, and hear that Kobe and, and the, the coach from Orange Coast College, and not only that, but three little girls who had just begun their life, uh, their lives snuffed out. And I, it, it, as crazy as this is to say, that one probably hit me hardest. Um, I think in part because Kobe and I were the same age. Um, I, I don't know a time when I have not, you know, like ever since high school, he's been a part of what it meant to grow up in Southern California. And there was something that just, it reminded me in that moment I was slapped right in the face with the reminder that we are not promised tomorrow, let alone the end of today. And it doesn't matter how high you climb. It doesn't matter what you accomplish, how much you accumulate. Those things can't protect you. They can't buy another moment of life. And so I've been sitting with this, and it's been a really kind of melancholy week. I remember um, probably on Wednesday, I'm the boys, when they wake up, they come tramping down the stairs and they jump into bed and Kathy and I kind of like protect ourselves while they're jumping into bed. And then, then we have a conversation typically. And, and it, I was processing with my, my eldest, Ethan, about Kobe dying and, and all of these kind of things. And I just, I, I just remember telling him, hey, bud, you know that we're not promised, you know, long lives. We're not promised to live into our 70s and 80s. We're not promised bodies that won't break down. We're not promised to own a house. Jesus never promised us that we would have happy lives. He never promised those things. You know what He promised us? He promised us that He would never leave us, that He would never turn His back on us. He promised us that the brokenness of this world, and it is broken, wouldn't get the last word. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. That's what he's promised us. And so, you know, it, it's just, but it's been a hard week. And I want to acknowledge that going in because I know that, um, I mean, I know that for Kelly, for instance, he lost his coach this week. Many of our, our, our students lost somebody from their school or they were impacted by it. And many of us are having to face our mortality yet again. And I am so grateful to know that Kobe and his daughter and many others are at home with Jesus. I'm grateful for the faith that they had because that's the hope that we have, that in Christ, the brokenness of this world and the kind of the seemingly random 
loss of life doesn't get the last word. But anyway, with that, today I am very, very grateful that we get to jump back into the book of Acts. We are going to, between now and summer, we're going to continue to slowly work our way through the book of Acts, in large part because it's a, it is the story of God moving through his church, just like we recognize God is moving through us to be light in the darkness, to be his ambassadors of hope. And so that's why we are spending all of this time in the book of Acts. And I got to tell you, uh, it, I'm willing to go slow because I am finding that it has so much to say to us today, even though it's something that may have happened 2,000 years ago. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to be um, unpacking today. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and just spend a few minutes reminding us of what has transpired in the, in the letter or in the book of Acts so far, because many of you may not have been a part of the church when we began this several months ago. And for the rest of us, it's been two very long months full of a lot of other things that have distracted us. So we are all familiar, I would imagine, with the Great Commission, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. He looked at his closest followers, these men and women, and he said, listen, guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so now I am sending you, go and make more disciples. Continue to do what I've been doing. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. In other words, take that yoke of teaching that I have placed upon your shoulders and pass it down to another generation. That's what it means to make a disciple, a fully committed follower of Jesus. We know that. But it's interesting that the book of Acts actually opens with a recording of a different command that Jesus gave his disciples. And you don't have to turn to Acts 1, I'm just going to briefly reference this. But in Acts 4, it says that on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait? I I, I thought we were supposed to go. Why are we waiting? Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait For the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's presence that had equipped, remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and empowered him throughout his entire earthly ministry. That's how somebody who was fully human could do such miraculous things because he had God's Spirit in him empowering him throughout his public ministry. It was God's Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and it would be God's Spirit that would ultimately empower his people. Jesus recognized that although he was calling them to go and make more disciples, By their own strength, they were completely and utterly incapable of doing that. All they could accomplish was making an unholy mess by their own strength. But with God's Spirit, it was a totally different conversation. So he said, wait until you have the Spirit. But once the Spirit comes, he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area of Judea, and to the untouchables in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That is what you will do once the Spirit comes upon you. 
And that's exactly what happened. A few days later, after Jesus had kind of said this, <coughs> on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after the Passover, the Holy Spirit fell upon the men and women who were huddled together in the upper room, hiding for fear that what had befallen Jesus would ultimately be happening to them. And when the Holy Spirit came, it was as if <clears throat> God had dropped spiritual mentos into this group of people that were the coke, and that little upper room could not possibly hold them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so they came flooding into the streets, and as they did, they were praising God in languages that they had never learned, languages that the people that were in Jerusalem for this, the Feast of Pentecost understood as their languages from home. And they heard the gospel being declared to them in their own languages, and they were cut to the heart. And that day, some 3,000 men and women were added to the church. And that was the beginning, and it was exciting. But then something interesting happened. The, the movement that began on Pentecost stalled out, and the disciples got comfortable or in the relative comfort of the walls of Jerusalem. They had the favor of all people, and they just kind of stayed there in Jerusalem. Rather than going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, they stayed in Jerusalem for about a year. But it wasn't all that comfortable. You see, the, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, began to push back against this movement, what they considered to be very heretical, very uh, misguided, because they did not consider Jesus to be the Messiah. They didn't want to accept the fact that the grave was empty and that Jesus had rode from the dead. Even though they had to acknowledge that the grave was empty, they just wanted to say that the, the disciples stole the body. And so they began to push back, and at every opportunity, they would arrest the leaders of the early church and drag them before the Sanhedrin, the very same council that had ultimately condemned Jesus to die on the cross. They would bring them before that council and say, we want you to stop talking about Jesus. We want you to stop doing miracles in his name. And it's so interesting that these men and women who had before that been terrified for their life and would even go so far as to deny even knowing Jesus, were suddenly celebrating that they were considered worthy to be arrested and beaten and persecuted. They, they reveled in it. But we, we know that ultimately they went beyond just heaping accusations and, and heaping warnings upon them. They finally went so far as to kill the first Christian martyr a guy named Stephen, because he would not renounce his faith. He would not declare that Jesus was not who he was claiming Jesus to be, namely the Son of God. He had the audacity, in fact, to say, see, I even see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and that was enough. They picked up stones, and they murdered him for his faith. And in that moment, it was like a breath that scattered the early church, almost as if God plucked the dandelion that was all of the seeds and blew them beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8. Stephen has just been stoned to death, and we're going to watch how God moves through them. So on that day, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day that Stephen was murdered, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles 
were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, this is just something that I find very interesting. The term apostle means sent one. And yet everybody but the sent ones leaves Jerusalem and they stay. They kind of go, isn't that opposite? Aren't they supposed to be the ones who go? And, um, and then I started thinking about how we've even been talking about our church not being the light, but you are the light that is ultimately sent every week. And we gather here and we are equipped and we are encouraged, but then we go. And in the same way, the, the apostles remained in Jerusalem almost like that, that power station where they, the, the disciples would come back and check in from time to time, but ultimately they were the ones on the front lines and they were sent by God. So the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul, <clears throat> this Pharisee who was giving his blessing to the stoning of Stephen, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So now we're beginning to see an upramping of the persecution. And we're going to talk more about Saul in a couple weeks. But verse 4 is a powerful, important verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Here's the thing. Persecution is not something that we should all desire Persecution is not something we should go seeking. Persecution is simply a reality of living in a sin-scarred world where people do not want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Persecution is an inevitability. Because Jesus even looked at his disciples and said, listen guys, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Persecution is something that is a natural part of life in this world, but... Oftentimes, persecution has a silver lining to it. In the midst of suffering, God uses it. And he certainly uses persecution in this instance. Because the stoning of Stephen and the breaking out of persecution ultimately does what the disciples were unwilling to do, namely to leave the relative comfort of Jerusalem where they are surrounded with people who think like them and act like them and they can just be comfortable. And God says, no, I didn't call you to be comfortable. I called you to go and make disciples. And so the persecution actually forces them to go. And what we're going to find is that the focus is now going to shift from the early church in Jerusalem, which was mainly on the, on the apostles. The focus is now going to shift to those who have been sent. And primarily today and next week, we're going to look at this one guy named Philip. Philip is, is a name we've come across before. He is a guy who was one of seven believers who were Greek-speaking, who were chosen to be deacons to care for the, the Greek-speaking widows and orphans within the early church. He, along with Stephen and five others, were chosen to help care for the tangible needs of the Greek-speaking believers. And we're now going to focus in on him. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in the city. <clears throat> now, a couple things I want to remind us. Number one, Philip is not one of the apostles. 
At most, he was a deacon, but he was somebody who, you know, he wasn't a teacher in the early church. He wasn't a bigwig in the early church. He was simply somebody who was available, somebody who had the Holy Spirit in him, and somebody who was willing to allow God to use him, and God did, and God will use him. And it's interesting that Philip found his way into Samaria because when we think of Samaria or Samaritans, we tend to think of that story of the good Samaritan. He's the only one who actually moves towards the hurting person. But lost on us today is that Samaritans were very despised by the Jewish population. You see, when the northern tribes of Israel had been overrun by the the king of Assyria, and they began to take Jews from out of those, that land, out of the promised land, and ship them back to Assyria to be slaves, there were some Jews that chose to remain in the land instead of being scattered. And those Jews began to intermarry with their Assyrian conquerors. And they had children who had children. And so when the Jews finally came back, led by a guy named you know, Nehemiah and others to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple, they found that there were already people living in the land that had some Jewish blood in them and some Assyrian blood. And those Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people, so much so that when the Samaritans said, hey, we want to help you rebuild the temple, Nehemiah and the crew were like, no, thank you. We don't want your help. You half-blooded dogs. They were disrespectful and demeaning to the Samaritans. They completely blew them off. It was so bad, in fact, that the Samaritans said, fine, if you won't let us have any part with you, then we will build our own temple where we can worship. And they built a rival temple in the northern area of of, um, Israel. And under one of the kings, under one of the, the Jewish kings, they came and actually destroyed the Samaritan temple. So you got to understand there's a lot of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews look at them as nothing but traitors, and the Samaritans look at the Jews as holier-than-thou pretentious people that will not allow them to worship the same God. And yet it's to the Samaritans that the Holy Spirit ultimately pushes Philip to begin to go and share the gospel. And he does so with works of miracles, so that the people are seeing him beginning to heal broken bodies and cast out spirits, and they are drawn to this, and they begin to go, there's something here. And so it's just a reminder for me that nobody, nobody is beyond redemption. And that the gospel is not just good news for the in crowd, or the people who have it together, or the people who look a certain way or speak a certain language or vote a certain way, the gospel is good news of great joy for everybody. That's why Jesus died, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles of which I am tremendously grateful because otherwise I would not be up here. Now, the the focus is going to shift again to a person named Simon who lived in this Samaritan village. We're never told which village it is. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Just that the gospel begins to make inroads to these people that Jews would normally want to avoid like the plague. So much so that when they were trying to travel from Jerusalem up to the Galilean region, they would go days out of their way to avoid traveling through Samaritan lands. That's how much the Jews despised them. And yet, 
we're going to see that God is beginning to break open this area with the gospel. Now, for a time, this is verse 9, for a time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in this Samaritan city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Just, just a suggestion, if you have to tell people you're great, you're probably not all that great. In fact, you might just be a narcissist, but let's keep going. So, he boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery, with his parlor tricks, with whatever he did, he convinced them that he somehow had power, that he was somebody important, and they had given him their esteem. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, these Samaritans who had been giving their respect to Simon the sorcerer, they were baptized, both men and women. In fact, even Simon believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, it's interesting that Simon himself is, is led to accept the name of Jesus and to get baptized, but I would suggest that his reason for doing so was convoluted. In fact, I don't believe that he was actually pursuing Jesus in this. He was pursuing the power that he saw exhibited. And we know this, at least the first hint of it we get is in verse 13, because he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. That, not, not it, it was the signs, it was the power he was drawn towards, not the one that they pointed towards. And this is going to become even more obvious as we keep reading. Because when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent two pillars, Peter and John, to Samaria. So two of Jesus' closest disciples who were pillars of the church come up to Samaria to see with their own eyes what's going on. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. They had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, so for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon the Samaritans, and maybe that's because God wanted Peter and John to see with their own eyes that even the Samaritans were being saved and that God was affirming them as his people. But they began to pray for all of these Samaritans who had given their hearts to Jesus. Peter and John placed their hands on them and, and these Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Well, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, hey, I want the ability so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit too. That's a pretty cool trick. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. 
Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he might forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I can see that you are full of bitterness and you are a captive of sin. And then Simon answered, well, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you've said may happen to me. I don't want that to happen. And then we move from them. After, that, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many other Samaritan villages. Now let's talk about Simon for just a moment. Because Simon is somebody who at first blush looks like a positive story. Here's somebody, he's one of many in that village who accepts the gospel message, chooses to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior, even goes so far as to get baptized, publicly declaring that he has become a convert and a follower of Jesus. But as things begin to unravel, we recognize that he's really not being drawn by Jesus. He's being drawn by the power that he sees because game respects game, and he's been the biggest game in the Samaritan village up to this point, but now all of a sudden, bigger fish have come in here with better game, more power, and he's like, I want that power. In fact, he is drawn to the gift, not to the giver. He's drawn to the power of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't actually want the Spirit of God here. He's not saying, hey, would you lay hands on me so that I too can have God's Spirit, so that I too can have a closer, more intimate relationship with God, so that I too can be His representative. That's not what He's driven by. Instead, He's driven by, I want to have the ability to be a dispensary of the Holy Spirit so that people have to come to me to get their Holy Spirit filled. And and Simon and his response is an example, and it's unfortunately a very human tendency, where we actually pursue God with false motives. We pursue God not because we hunger and thirst for Him, or because we hunger and thirst for righteousness, or because we want to radiate His heart better and more accurately. We are drawn to wanting the Holy Spirit, and we are wanting what God can give us. And I just wonder how many of us have approached God in a similar fashion to how Simon approached God, not for what He offered, namely himself, not because he hungered to connect with him, but because he wanted the gift, not the giver. How many of us have pursued Jesus in that way? And maybe we haven't done it in order to try to make our own name great. Maybe we haven't pursued Jesus as an attempt to kind of build our own kingdom, but how many of us have pursued Jesus with less than pure motives? Namely, Jesus, I want you to make my life better. I want what you can do for me, not you, right? Because we often, and I'll be quite honest, more often than not, when we present the gospel, we present it in such a way that it's a transactional thing. You pray a prayer, and he'll give you your best life now. You pray a prayer and you can take the broken pieces and he will make a beautiful mosaic out of it that will be so radically different that you won't even believe it. 
and we seek what Jesus can do for us as opposed to seeking Jesus. And I don't mean to throw stones here because quite honestly, I'm probably part of the problem. And in a lot of ways, I have pursued Jesus out of what he can do. But what I want to remind us is that Jesus has never promised us to, to fix everything that ails us. He's never promised us that he can protect us from helicopters falling out of the sky. He's never promised he can protect us from not having our cars break down or not having our bodies break down or not having our marriages break down. He has never promised us painless lives. In fact, he promised just the opposite. On the same night where he warned his disciples, listen guys, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. He looked at these men and women that he loved and he said, listen, I want to warn you, in this world you will have trouble. He was talking about persecution. He was talking about the fact that if they chose to follow him, if you're really following me, then you are going to experience the same sort of brokenness that I experienced. And let's not forget what kind of brokenness Jesus experienced. He was mocked by the power brokers of his day. He was rejected He had crowds clamoring for him when he was giving them bread and when he was healing them. But the moment that he pointed his eyes towards Jerusalem and said, I'm not coming to be king, they mocked him for it. They rejected him and they ultimately demanded his death because he wasn't going to be the conquering king that they thought. And Jesus ultimately died a painful death for us. And he said, now follow me. Follow me in sacrifice. Follow me in suffering. Follow me in being willing to look at the brokenness of this world and broken people who reject you and mock you and love them anyway. Follow me. In this world, you'll have brokenness. And that brokenness can look like a lot of things. That brokenness can look like broken bodies. Many of you are experiencing that. Many of you have received a a less than stellar uh, prognosis from a doctor and you're living with your mortality in your own body. Some of you experience the brokenness of this world in your families, whether it be your marriage or your parents who are struggling with dementia or Alzheimer's or or maybe it's your children who are just kind of choosing to go their own way. Maybe you've experienced the brokenness of this world in your job or lack thereof right now. And you say, I have so much to offer if somebody would just open that door. And maybe it has to do with socially. Whatever the brokenness we experience in this world, the fact that you are experiencing it is not because God has turned a blind eye to you. It is simply a product of living in a broken, sin-scarred world. And Jesus never promised to protect us from it. In fact, he said, if you follow me, you're going to experience it. But he didn't stop on that very encouraging note. He continued, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but you can take heart that I have overcome the world. 
And I guarantee you his disciples didn't have a clue what he was talking about when he said that. But Jesus was looking forward about 24 hours to when he would hang on a cross and pay the penalty of the sin and brokenness of this world with his own body. And in so doing, he declared once and for all that sin does not get the last word, the brokenness of this world does not get this la the last word. The brokenness of our bodies, our marriages, our society does not get the last word. God does. And even though we may taste death, unless Jesus comes back soon, we may taste death. But that will not be our legacy. That will not be all we have to look forward to. We have hope in the midst of losing people that we would consider to be heroes or children, we have hope in the midst of that, that that helicopter crash doesn't get the last word. We have midst, hope in the midst of a broken relationship with somebody, that even that doesn't get the last word. We have hope in the midst and in the face of our own mortality and our own brokenness that we're all so familiar with. There's hope that that doesn't get the last word. And so if you have been following Jesus because you think he's going to fix everything, may I simply remind you that you have hung your faith on the gift that you expect, even though it is not something that Jesus ever promised you. He said, follow me. Let's do life together. Yes, you'll experience brokenness, but you can have, ho you can have hope that it won't get the last word. And we have eternity to look forward to. So yes, we may suffer, but we do not suffer as those who have no hope. But if you have been hanging your faith on the peg of your circumstances, then it does not surprise me if right now your faith is being shaken because you have placed your faith in the wrong thing. You, like Simon, have been pursuing the gift, not the giver. Now, can Jesus... Take the brokenness and make beautiful things. He does it all the time. He has this ability to take broken shards of our life and make a beautiful mosaic of redemption and hope. He takes broken people. I just think about the way that Kobe's life and his death has probably been the most impactful thing to our culture, at least around here where we're feeling it, has been the most impactful thing since 9-11. And think back to 9-11 when, when we all took a right, you know, straight jab to the solar plexus as a society and the ways that we were shaken, our safety was shaken. And yet, look at the good that came out of that. There was a spiritual revival that came out of 9-11. Now, do we celebrate the death of all those people? Absolutely not. We grieve with them, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I believe that Kobe's death has, has been a similar shot to the solar plexus for us as a society, particularly because his daughter was in the plane, particularly because enti an entire family was pretty much wiped off the planet. And they are people that are in our community. That hurts. And we grieve with them, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I believe that God is even now changing the eternal trajectory of some people's lives. There are people who are going to church today. Maybe you are here today because you have been at a point where you just go, 
I don't know how to proceed. And I have been in this overwhelming sense of blah, and I need hope. And maybe today, there are people who are hearing it for the first time in a long time simply because of Kobe's death. So we don't celebrate it. But God has a way of taking the broken shards of our life and making a beautiful mosaic out of it. It's interesting that Simon pursued the power so that he could make his own name great, so that he could continue to increase his power. And Peter and John picked up on it. And they called him out for it. They said, you, you are pursuing this for the wrong reason. In fact, I'll just let them use their own words. Peter answered, may your money perish. I mean, they saw through Simon's motivation. He was trying to use the Holy Spirit the same way that Ananias and Sapphira from a couple chapters before used their money to try to curry favor within the early church. And they saw that Simon was trying to misuse the Holy Spirit for his own gain. And they called him out. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God for money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart isn't right before God. If you're not willing to submit to him, if you're not pursuing him for him alone, not for what he can do for you, then you have no share in him. Repent, turn from your wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart because I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. And I, I find it very interesting how Simon responds to that very strong rebuke. <laughs> Simon answered, you pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Now notice what he requests. He doesn't request, pray to the Lord for me that God would redeem me. Pray to the Lord for me so that God would accept me. No, no, no. Pray to the Lord so that everything you just described won't happen to me. I don't want to feel that. I don't want that to happen to me. Even in his request, even in his being rebuked, he's still trying to protect himself from any negatives. Simon is the kind of person who was pursuing the Holy Spirit with wrong motives. And sometimes we pursue Jesus in that way. Maybe sometimes we come to him expecting him to make our life better. And when that doesn't necessarily happen, we get disenchanted. But sometimes it's not just Jesus that we are pursuing with wrong motives. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, just like Simon. And I will confess, um, I, I long, I hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit to move. There's a reason why we have been doing the book of Acts. In part, it's because I hunger and thirst for the Holy Spirit's presence in my life, in my family, and in this church. I hunger for it. I hunger to see the Holy Spirit move. I hunger to see people's lives transformed. To see, I hunger to see Tony never have to bring his breathing apparatus to church so that he can just get another breath. I hunger to see healings like we've seen with Bill where holes that have been in his side close up miraculously over a couple of days. I hunger to see that. I hunger to see the Holy Spirit sh change marriages and, and restore relationships. And the truth is we've seen that over and again and yet I hunger and thirst for more of it. 
But this morning, I'm forced to ask myself, why? Why am I hungering for it? Am I hungering for it because those miraculous signs of restoration and redemption point people to God and only lend credibility to the gospel? Is that the reason why I'm hungering for it? Because that's how the Holy Spirit's miracles have always been used, is not the end in and of themselves, but we're simply to support the power of the words. So am I hungering for it for that reason, or am I hungering for it because, quite honestly, I just want to see some miracles? I, I just, I, I want people to go, wow, the Holy Spirit's in that church. Let's get all our friends to go, and it'll get bigger, you know? Is that, is that what's going on for me? I have to grapple with this, because here's what I'm reminded of this morning. If the Holy Spirit moves, it will not be to make my kingdom or my influence greater. If the Holy Spirit moves, it will not be to do my will, it will be to do God's will. Because from the beginning of time, the Holy Spirit has been moving and working to advance God's kingdom, His purpose, His plans. And the moment we start trying to commodify the Holy Spirit into something like the force and somehow try to figure out how we can bend it to our desires so that we can somehow make the world better the way that we want it, we have misunderstood and misappropriated the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is part of the triune Godhead. He is not a nameless, faceless power that we can somehow tap into to get our way. And every time the Holy Spirit moves, it is to bring about God's purpose and His plans not the other way around. Simon made the mistake of trying to use God's power to bring his own kingdom to the forefront, to make his name great. And Peter rebuked him because the Holy Spirit is not about making our name great. It's about making our Father's name great. The Holy Spirit is not about advancing our kingdoms. It's about advancing his kingdom. And this morning, this question that's been up here for a few minutes I want you to consider it with me. Do you long for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Do you? You don't have to answer out loud. Just think about that for a moment. Do you hunger and thirst as I do for more of the Holy Spirit? Now, before you answer that question, I simply need to remind us that if the Holy Spirit comes here, if He falls upon us, if He begins to move in our lives, it may not result in what you're wanting. It may not fix all that ails you and it may not give you your best life now. The Holy Spirit moved the early church out of their comfort zone, placed them in positions that were dangerous, in some instances cost them their lives. The Holy Spirit may not make your life more comfortable. In fact, probably won't. The Holy Spirit may push you towards people you would rather run away from. 
or at least kind of secretly judge in your heart and write off as whatever. The Holy Spirit may ask you to go places that you don't want to go. The Holy Spirit may ask you to give up things that you are not ready to relinquish. But if the Holy Spirit comes, you can take heart in the fact that God can and will use you through the Holy Spirit's enablement to advance His kingdom, His purpose, His plan. So here's the question. Are you willing to allow God to use you? And do you hunger for the Holy Spirit to move in your life even if He asks you for your stuff, for your time, for your addictions, for your wounds, for your hopes and your dreams, even if he asks you for your very life, are you willing to allow God to help himself to your life, to do what it is he wants to do through you? Because at the end of the day, this is not about us building our kingdoms and being more comfortable. This is about us saying, God, you are God, and we are not. Help yourself to our lives to do what you want. We're grateful that we get to be part of this. So if that's, if that's you, if you are along with me saying, I want more of the Holy Spirit and I want God to have his way in me, would you just stand up for a moment? Don't just do it because other people are doing it, but if you, like me, hunger for the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, stand up. And I just want to, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I just want to pray over us. If, if you would, if there's somebody standing near you, and you're standing, just put an arm out. Let's just be close to one another. Let's lay some hands on one another. Let's pray. Father God, here we are, your sons and your daughters, created in your image. We love you. We are... We don't feel deserving of you, and that's what it makes the gospel such good news, is that you love us in spite of us. And Holy Spirit, we confess that at many times we have sought you solely for what you can do for us. We have, we have seen you simply as a means to an end. But we want to be that means. We want to be the vessels that you pour your spirit into, Jesus, to bring about your will. We want to be your representatives, even if people look at us funny, even if people unfriend us on social media, even if it costs us our comfort and our stuff. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in us. You know the, the, the things that stand in the way of that. And we ask, Father, that you would use your spirit to cook it out of us, get rid of it from the inside out, change us from the inside out, that our lives would shine like beacons of hope. Not that we would drive people to us, but that we would drive people to you. May our lives reflect your love and your truth. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in us. We invite you to fall upon your family here. 
We pray that you, like, like you did on the day of Pentecost, that it would be so radically transformative that we could not contain it and it would spill over into our spheres of influence, into our neighborhoods, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our gyms and, and the places that we frequent when we don't have to be at home or at work. Help yourself to our lives. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.